Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is an old friend of Future of Finance, Simon Chantry, who's co-founder and CIO at BIT, whose digital currency management system underpins five CBDC and stablecoin deployments across no less than three continents. The latest deployment of BIT DCMS is the eNaira, the CBDC, which the Central Bank of Nigeria launched on 25th of October last year. Simon, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you today, Dominic. Now, as I just said, the eNaira went live uh, in Nigeria on 25th of October. That was just four years after the central bank started looking for the first time um, at doing a CBDC back in 2017. Now, is this is this the real thing? Is this a real CBDC or is it a pilot scheme uh, for the real CBDC later on? Yeah, thanks, Dominic, for the question. It's uh, it's definitely an exciting one for us getting to deploy uh, in sort of the biggest economy in Africa. This is not a test. It's not a drill. Uh, there's already been substantial onboarding to the system. Um, I think the approach that they've taken is uh, it's it's certainly quick and um, and it's it's a substantial approach where they're looking to target you know as as much uh, as, as many users as possible merchants throughout the country um, the commercial banks a large percentage of the commercial banks are onboarded and and integrated um, so no it's it's not a drill this is a real live CBDC deployment in the biggest economy in Africa mm-hmm. now every country that uh, this is something we've learned from CBDCs uh, that have been launched so far every country that launches one has its own reasons. Uh, for doing so. What do you think Nigeria's reasons were for launching a CBDC at this time? Yeah, look, I, I think, so when you look at any particular CBDC deployment or a central bank, um, there are uh, a series of influencing factors that are common to every central bank in the world, in my opinion, and then there's a series that are um, specific to their economy and financial system. And of course, every central bank uh, is now sort of under a certain amount of technological pressure, having seen the development of cryptocurrency and decentralized finance over the last decade. And and more specifically, over the last few years, the the market cap, the aggregated market cap of cryptocurrencies has now entered into the trillions. And you have decentralized finance and stable coins um, doing billions and billions of dollars worth of, of trading and lending activity on a daily basis basis. Um, even the, the growth of, of US dollar stable coins is substantial, and that can be considered um, a, a continuation or an extension of the US dollar around the world in, in sort of Web3 economies or, or DeFi economies. And so the Central Bank of Nigeria is no exception, of course, that's a country with high uh, crypto and Bitcoin usage. I, one survey that I saw was uh, 32% of Nigerians have touched Bitcoin at, at some time in some transaction or another. Um, so I think they have that consideration where they're saying, well, part of what has made cryptocurrency a success is the technological evolution uh, that, that's that sort of happened. What are the, the rails that crypto are riding on? These internet native payment rails is how I like to refer to them. Uh, and so that's one element of it. And it's one element that they can use to evolve their own currencies. And so that's sort of like an, an obvious um, international influencing factor. I think in a country like Nigeria, where you do have some inflation concerns concerns, and, and uh, foreign exchange control concerns, um, they're looking for new tools to combat those risks and, and those scenarios as well. Uh, and so there's some, uh, we're, we're providing them with some of the capabilities and certainly the eNaira solution, the DCMS will evolve to address, um, at least as far as we can, some of those problems. And so we're basically augmenting their tool set to address some of the problems that they face. Um, looking, uh, looking, I guess, in, in some other categories, it also puts Nigeria on the stage to be able to collaborate with other international central banks. Uh, we see some collaboration being done, you know, with Monetary Authority of Singapore, Hong Kong Monetary Authority, Bank of Canada, Bank of England. We're, we're looking to, uh, and certainly Central Bank of Nigeria, uh, will now be able to participate perhaps in some of the, you know, cross-border, cross-currency swap and exchange experiments. Uh, and so really to put their, you know, their, um, uh, financial technology strong a strong foot forward in financial technology to be able to participate and uh, and be part of that discussion be part of that evolution as we push uh, central bank digital currencies forward 
I'll, I'll come back to that uh, cross-border point, but can I just press you on one of the things you, you mentioned there about Nigeria being a very large market for cryptocurrency? As you said, a third of Nigerians have touched the cryptocurrency in some way. I read a survey saying it was the sixth largest uh, cryptocurrency market in the world, and there are real reasons, and we see this in other African countries, why Nigerian consumers might want to use uh, cryptocurrencies, exchange controls and inflation uh, being among them. We know the Nigerian government tried to prevent the Nigerian banks from supporting uh, consumers trying to buy cryptocurrency. Is the is part of their thinking, um, and it's a slightly unfair question to put to you, but is, is the ENIRA part of a government um, uh, policy to, to suppress or reduce the use of, of cryptocurrencies in the country by providing an alternative? That's a good question. Um, I, and I, you know, obviously I don't have a uh, full perspective on their policy goals or their, you know, legislative goals. Um, we are tech service providers. And, and so, like I mentioned, we're providing them with, you know, an extensive tool set, an augmented tool set. Um, that being said, you know, we haven't heard any stated intentions to, uh, for the eNaira to replace cryptocurrency. And I think anyone looking sort of under the hood would recognize that, you know, the value proposition offered by decentralized uh, digital currencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum and others um, is entirely different than digitized national currencies, digitized fiat currencies. And so um, I think, you know, in, in the spirit of, uh, of, the, of the technological tool set, um, BIT has sort of designed our digital currency management system in order to be able to integrate with digital currencies um, from the perspective of a regulator or monetary authority. So for them to be able to achieve um, more comprehensive or, or uh, effective regulation of uh, digital currencies. And so that's a possibility. Now they haven't, again, the central bank hasn't stated that they will, that they intend to do this. I'm just saying from BITS perspective, we recognize the innovation in cryptocurrency and uh, we've designed our system so that should a monetary authority wish to use it to more effectively regulate the digital currency space that they would be able to. And there's a number of ways that uh, you could imagine that CBDCs could be used to more effectively regulate digital currency trade. So having registered uh, virtual asset service providers use uh, a CBDC as the base trade pair uh, would help enable, you know, better monitoring of inflows and outflows and whatnot. So there's some advanced monetary policy tool sets that uh, could be realized by, you know, regulating the space, mandating use of CBDCs and elements of the space uh, and whatnot. Um, but we, we haven't had any indication from the Central Bank of Nigeria that they wish to do that uh, just yet. Can we, can we talk a little bit about how this, um, how the ENIRA is going to be held, how it's going to be um, distributed? If I understand it correctly, the ENIRA is a retail CBDC, by which I mean anybody in the country can hold it. Question is how they, how they will do that. Is the central bank relying on the, the commercial banks to distribute this? In other words, to provide the customer facing wallets, the apps on the mobile telephone, which people will use actually to hold this. I, I noticed, for example, you must have a bank uh, verification number, which indicates you must have a bank account now uh, mm -hmm. before you can actually access the, the currency. Tell us a bit about how it's being distributed, who the primary distributors are, and uh, how, if I was a Nigerian consumer, I could actually get hold of this. What do I, what do I need to have to hold it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's, it started with uh, uh, the, the um, bank identification number, um, which yeah does initially restrict to just uh, bank account holders. Um, the intention is to open that up to the very vibrant Nigerian financial technology ecosystem. And so, you know, various payment service providers and other fintechs in the space um, will soon be able to also integrate and provide payment services to the general public. Uh, but right now, yes, it, it is linked to, uh, to the commercial banks, the, the current registered commercial banks. We're really excited for being able to, to move to that next step and open up the APIs, open up access to more fintechs. Again, you know, Nigeria has a thriving financial technology ecosystem. And I think part of the effort here is to uh, sort of provide a common platform so that users can transact across all of the different apps in the country with the eNaira being the, the sort of cheapest, you know, fastest, most secure uh, network uh, rail so that you can attract, yeah, again, so you can transact across platforms, across applications, across institutions. So that's the ultimate goal. We have to start somewhere. It's an iterative process. There's plenty of integrations to be had. You picture the challenge, you picture the challenge that BIT has um, when we enter a new 
economy or financial system, we effectively have to analyze the integrations that are required to make the CBDC as desirable and functional as possible. And so we're looking at core banking system integrations and integrations, uh, you know, SMS and uh, um, and any other integrations where uh, we see that there's healthy transaction activity or there may be healthy transaction activity, we need to make sure that we're fulfilling those requirements. And so it's good for us. Our feature set continues to grow. Our functionality continues to grow. Um, but as we roll out country to country, um, it is an iterative process. And so, yeah, again, we're looking to really looking forward to opening it up further to more players within the Nigerian uh, financial ecosystem and beyond. Now, there are also caps, I believe, on uh, how much of the e-Naira any individual consumer can, can hold. It's 20,000 uh, Naira, I thought, for most people, like $50. And nobody can, can use it to make a payment of more than 200,000 Naira. That's less than $500. What was the, what's the logic of those caps? Because one of the, the concerns that's been expressed about CBDCs generally is it kind of strips commercial banks of their funding base. Uh, but given that the, the, the banks are the main distributors of this and you have to have a bank account to get hold of it, maybe that wasn't a concern. So what's the purpose of these, these caps on how much you can hold and how much you can pay in ENARA? Yeah, it's a good question. Again, it's one that's, um, you know, not it's, this is one that's not really at our discretion. So, you know, when we, we listen to the central bank's requirements and our digital currency management system uh, is able to effectively configure those either balance limits, transaction limits, holding limits. Um, so we've, you know, we've listened to their requirements. As far as the, the intentions, again, I would sort of kick this back to the fact that it's an iterative process. And you, I, I, obviously the, the CBN is heavily researched uh, CBDCs and, and uh, all the research that's come out over the past few years. And, and so I think those are levers that are still sort of being tweaked to, to sort of understand what optimal limits really are. And obviously, you know, there are AML compliance considerations, but as you mentioned, there's the bank funding consideration as well. This is a new asset. It's a central bank. It's an extension of, of central bank money. Um, and so I think the research has said that limits, you know, are uh, are a good tool to use to just encourage uh, payment and not sort of hoarding and savings in CBDCs, which is sort of where the bulk of that risk lies um, for affecting bank funding in a negative way. So, yeah, again, I uh, I don't have full insight into into uh, their decision making process. That would be more of a question for the Central Bank of Nigeria. Um, but of course, we will work with them and we can implement those uh, those limits, um, you know, in, in multiple ways as they are configurable with our system. I guess an interesting test will we the next iteration when it's opened up to to non bank uh, payment service providers as well. Mm -hmm. uh, now, another question is 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 uh, is privacy. What what um and I guess you, you could configure your system to accommodate this as well. What guarantees is the central bank in Nigeria offering to consumers about the privacy of their, their transactions? As far as I could tell, the central bank can see every transaction if it wants to. Um, and will Nigerians not be concerned about the central bank being able to see what they're up to? Um, are there any guarantees that can be offered to consumers about, well, there will be a degree of privacy if you use this e-Naira? Yeah, it's a great point. It's basically reflecting the current what we're seeing um, more broadly, and I think it's it's um, it will be sort of the de facto wave that CBDCs are rolled out, where the payment service providers, so the 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 entities that are effectively providing the wallets, the end users, they still collect the KYC, much like commercial banks collect KYC information. Um, on on their all their account holders uh you know in, in the current system and then if the regulator needs to identify any particular individual then they would need to go to uh the corresponding wallet service provider so whichever wallet service provider is servicing an individual they would need to actually go through um that payment service provider or commercial bank in order to identify the individual and uh, and then look into their transaction history um there has been some discussion around a base tier wallet that is completely anonymous so that's an interesting use case that we're um uh, that we're sort of scoping and investigating and trying to determine the viability uh for rolling that out um i haven't seen any any uh specific privacy guarantees again that's a little out of our wheelhouse um, although I'm, I like personally and, and bit are sort of in extensive discussions worldwide about uh, sort of privacy and accountability standards being set. Um, we're looking towards bodies like uh, G20 
for guidance on this. And I think it's, it's something that's being demanded internationally is to say, who's setting standards for privacy and accountability? And uh, how can we be sure that we're meeting those standards provably? Um, so it's, it's definitely something that's top of mind for both central banks and tech service providers like BIT worldwide. Um, but, but right now it basically mimics the current system. So on one point of detail, which I think reinforces the point you were making earlier about the Central Bank of Nigeria wanting to encourage people to use this to make payments, but not to hold uh, their savings in. I'm right to say that the ENIRA doesn't pay interest. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Now, now again, you can. That's a configurable component. So it's like when when I talk about an augmented monetary policy tool set, the Bit DCMS um, enables configurable interest rates. But what, again, what we've seen off the sort of for all the initial launches is that central banks are setting the interest rate at at zero. Okay. And, and now, what about the the merchants, the shopkeepers, the service providers? Um, how are they um, able to accept? Um, Naira, and have you been able to gauge how enthusiastic they are about this? I mean, we just talked a minute ago about this this payment limit of two hundred thousand uh, naira, um, and I assume they face the same caps on on holdings and and, and payments as uh, as retail consumers do. Do we? Is it too soon to say that uh, merchants are falling over themselves to to accept Naira in payment, or is it? I don't know how difficult it is to roll these things out across all the the various payment channels, but uh, it presumably it takes time. What's what's your sense of, of how merchants are reacting to the introduction of the of the ENIRA? Yeah, I don't have the figures on hand and, and apologies for that. Um, the, I guess the goal is when, when we think about what would incentivize merchants to accept CBDCs, it's kind of like the instant settlement element where um, merchants typically wait you know, a period of time to receive settlement if they accept, uh, for example, credit card payments. And so this is an alternative digital payment rail where you have instant settlement so you can turn around and use that balance to pay your vendors or pay your staff or, or whatever other expenses you might have. Um, and, and so I think if, if I look at uh, where the opportunities are, uh, oh, and by the way, the transaction and holding limits for merchants, uh, I, I believe are different than what's been published. And, and again, something that I'll have to verify, but they are, they are configurable in, in and of themselves, because as you can imagine, when you onboard to a merchant app, you provide a business registration, so you can have sort of different, uh, different transaction holding limits. Um, I know that... Uh, Okay, so first of all, merchants would be using a point of sale application like specific to, uh, or rather that can be loaded on any smartphone or tablet. Um, they also have the opportunity to use e-commerce and for payments to sort of be aggregated to, to uh, uh, the same account so that they can accept payments online for uh, goods and services and in person. Um, so I think yeah, so having instant settlement, uh, sort of reducing the cost of cash management, um, getting them onboarded to e-commerce, right? These are some of the sort of factors that we think will encourage merchants into uh, into the ecosystem. Also having USSD payments, it's one of the features on our roadmap that we're looking to uh, integrate probably by Q2, I would think. Um, so yeah, I, there, there's a number of factors that will encourage merchant adoption. I do not have the figures on me right now, though. Apologies, Dominic. The point is they don't have to invest in a lot of new equipment. They can use existing point of sale devices, telephones, internet, etc. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's meant to be a low barrier to entry for uh, merchants, which is why we've sort of we've shied yeah. away from any custom yeah. uh, hardware or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. They can also still continue to accept cash. One of the interesting things is that the that the Naira is going to coexist alongside the e-Naira, the two being pegged one-to-one. Um, -one. Do you, so we're going to have a cash Naira and a, and a sort of e-Naira coexisting for quite a long time. Do you expect that to be to be permanent? What does it tell us about what other countries might do? Is, is cash something which we're never going to get rid of? Is it important to a large enough segment of the population to want to preserve it? I think it is. Yeah. It's, again, it's something that's unique country by country. Like when, when you look at the Nordic countries, they have sort of naturally trended away from cash. Um, but whereas in Nigeria, cash is still in heavy usage. And so I think it's ultimately about uh, giving consumers the option, giving consumers, businesses, enterprises, the government, giving them the option on you know which rails do they wish to transact on. Um, we don't see a, a stated intent to eliminate cash. 
Um, so I think I think it's just providing more optionality and, uh, and again more powerful digital financial services that are sort of you know I like to say digital financial services as a public good or, or digital financial network as a public good um, that will live live alongside cash. You mentioned a minute ago that uh, keeping the barriers to entry low for merchants was important. It seems that the barrier to entry for consumers is quite low as well. I was quite surprised at how. A little was required of you to open a wallet. It was just your name, your, your place and date of birth, your phone number, your passport, photograph, email address, and basically a password, and off you go. You've got a, you've got a wallet and can start using um, eNaira. Um, do, do you, do you think that other countries will want to keep that barrier to adoption as low as that? I mean, it seems to me to, to have considerable scope for. Um, for illicit, illicit wallets opening, if you like, and transactions to follow from that, or am I misunderstanding it? No, you're right. That's always a risk. It's always a consideration. Uh, because, and it, I guess it effectively boils down to identity fraud, right? If, if uh, yes, if that's you're what I mean. To, yeah, <laughs> you put yeah, it much more concisely than me. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you're able to spoof an identity or you've stolen an identity, uh, you would have the ability to. Uh, um, to, to create accounts, uh, I think it's it would be an unwise system to to use it on. Again, given that, um, given the sort of AML compliance functionality that is in place, and the fact that um, as you register, like you you are registering with an entity, and transactions can be investigated in the event of. Uh, um, if there's legal justification to do so, so I guess if there are downstream fraudulent transactions, uh, then they'll get flagged just like transactions in the current system, right? Uh, and so they'll be reported on and investigated and whatnot. So I don't think it would be, yeah, I, I, I certainly don't think it would be the wisest uh, network for criminals to be transacting on, um, but it is a risk. It certainly is a risk. And uh, like one of the elements that goes hand in hand and we see sort of our, you know, our chief architect, our chief technology officer um, sees as, as being a potential solution here is self-sovereign digital identity. And, and yet there are a host of sort of complications and, and a, a large process for populations to go through in order to get effectively registered and, and to start utilizing and get educated on how to utilize a self-sovereign digital identity. Um, and yet that really would solve quite a few of these problems uh, when it comes to KYC verification, um, privacy, data security, data collection, accountability for those who have access to data. Um, so it's, you know, it's one of the, those things that we are focusing on as a uh, as sort of a way to streamline onboarding and minimize any honeypots and minimize the unnecessary divulgence of KYC and identity information. Um, so, you know, sort of stay tuned on that and, uh, and, and we're sort of trying to push um, push that uh, as, as far as we can, given the, the, the position that we're, we're seated in as, as a firm. Um, but I do think it, it will be inevitable that we'll see sort of more robust digital identity uh, uh, programs that will uh, sort of, again, be another tool to mitigate the risk of identity fraud and, and you know, multiple accounts and using accounts for nefarious purposes. Let's hope so. Digital identities certainly seem to uh, solve a lot of problems in, uh, in identification. Uh, talking of which, um, self-sovereign identities. Now, now corporates could get these as well. My understanding is though that, that corporates using the ENARA do undergo a full KYC, AML, CFT and sanction screening uh, test process uh, before they can start to use it. Now, is that are those tests being run by the banks? This is as a broad question about CBDCs because we kind of expect banks to carry on doing whatever we think about how, how pointless or pointful these tests are, we kind of expect banks to, to do them. Is that what's happening in Nigeria? Are the, are the banks running the KYC, AML, the customer due diligence tests on corporates? Right. They are, right. Yeah, and, that, and that's where I mentioned, like it basically mimics the current system where uh, banks have the option to offer, you know, retail consumer accounts, and then they also can offer business accounts. It's the same deal with, uh, uh, with the CBDC structure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And once you've got your wallet, how, how secure is it? You mentioned a minute ago, it wouldn't be very sensible to use the eNara network to, if you were a criminal, but uh, do we have any evidence yet of, of how secure the wallets are, are proving? Are they being hacked and attacked by fraudsters and taken out by fraudsters or not? 
yeah, we haven't seen, I mean, there have been no reports of that thus far. Again, um, we, but again, as, as sort of a technology service provider, we don't have that intimate of, of data. Um, so I'm just thinking like, you know, of the different meetings we've been a part of and, and risk management and, and that sort of thing. It hasn't been, well, it hasn't bubbled up to, to sort of our, uh, our level yet as, as like requiring additional sort of technological efforts or additional services from our side. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, we, we stand behind the structure that we have. I mean, um, and again, this is sort of where, you know, borrowing elements from uh, the crypto innovation over the last decade, if you're effectively deploying public private key um, infrastructure and, and following sort of, you know, password protection, two-factor authentication, um, it's a robust and secure system, you know, uh, in, inclusive of the sort of uh, more architecture specific and uh, Deployment security considerations, without even getting to those, you know, we we offer you know full best practices for safeguarding accounts and whatnot. So it um, yeah that, that hasn't been a, a stated concern at our level just yet. The, the system is uh, has been robust and secure from the outset. There were some gripes in the early days that people were struggling to to open their digital wallets even if they had their bank uh, mm-hmm. verification or identification number. Have those have those settled down now? And do you have any sense of what's causing them? Yeah, anytime uh, we do a new integration with uh, like a national identity system like that, that's effectively what that is, a BIN, there's always, you know, so, there's some, it's like any any issues that they may have been experiencing, you know, f- for the duration of, of operation of that system, then we get to experience them again as we integrate with the system, right? And so it's, uh, there's always going to be, you know, some of those sort of hiccups and we try and take, as, take care of as many of those um, in testing as possible. Um, but, uh, but yeah, as you launch, you know, it's, um, and then there was quite an influx of, of users initially. And so it, yeah, it caused a, a bit of a bottleneck there, but uh, I think, I think we're through and sort of smooth sailing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about remittances? Is, uh, is the ENIRA good news for Nigerians who are sending and receiving remittances? So those integrations haven't taken place yet, but it definitely is on the roadmap. So yeah, we're, we, uh, I think sort of coming later in the year, you're going to see onboarding of IMTOs for remittance and some more strategic integrations that will enable lower cost remittances. Um, so that, yeah, that's one of the stated goals of the Central Bank of Nigeria is to improve settlement times for remittance and drive down cost for remittances. So we're, we're definitely looking forward. We're not there yet, but we're moving forward to, towards those integrations later this year. And have we seen any any innovations by by banks or third parties aren't yet allowed to to use this? But are we seeing, as you mentioned, uh, Nigeria has quite a thriving uh, fintech sector. Are we seeing those fintechs starting to respond to this opportunity by creating new apps for for consumers and corporates to use, or is it too soon to point to things like that? Still too soon. Uh, let's like let's definitely stay in touch, and, and I can update you as we get because I, I suspect there are going to be plenty of uh, of integrations. Of course, we've been in talks with some of the uh, you know the, the quick moving fintechs like Flutterwave is an example. Um, I think that there's there's plenty of talent, plenty of ideas within Nigeria for for them to be iterating on and evolving use cases. So I'm really excited to see what what comes out of that. And uh, again, I think this year is going to be a busy one for uh, that sort of innovation. Mm-hmm. And and as we as we prepare to think about those innovations, can you tell us a bit about the the technology choices which are underpinning the ENIR? Obviously, your own DCMS system is is underpins the, the CBDC itself. But in, in terms of people who want to create apps to, to interact with it, um, what can you tell us about the underlying um, blockchain protocol or platform and the, you know, the APIs they'll be able to, to use to, to access this? Is this going to be a very complicated or very simple? Or um, how do they go? How, how will those innovators go about creating those new services, those new apps for consumers and corporates to use technologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is where I think, so if you think about where the industry is headed for, for CBDCs and stable coins, you have sort of configurable currency and configurable payments or, or uh, 
automated, yeah, I guess th th that's how you could say it, programmable currency versus programmable payments, sorry. And so programmable, program, programmable currency on the one hand would be feature sets that the central bank will sort of maintain control over. And that will be things like, you know, the, uh, the interest rate in the system, um, the account limits and, and per perhaps limitations um, uh, sort of, yeah, currency level uh, programmability. And then at the payment side, you have programmable payments, which are things like automated payments or conditional payments or batch payments. And that sort of functionality will be available to end users uh, in due time. So you can picture the amount of use cases, especially when you can send very small fractions of currency. So you're opening up uh, opportunities for micropayments, use cases, you're opening up all kinds of automated payment opportunities. Um, and again, the batch payments functionality, that's just sort of uh, what I would consider to be um, the most common programmable payments use cases. So I think that functionality in and of itself will open up a ton of different use cases that can be fulfilled by payment service providers or even the commercial banks. Um, and so we expect to see those niches filled by uh, by fintechs in the region. And so um, that's what you can look forward to, sort of base level programmability. I think, um, uh, you know, when you talk about cross currency or cross asset, we get into payment versus payment and delivery versus payment. Um, this is an interesting one where. I don't want to say it would be a blend of the two, but it's certainly a more complex integration. And it's, it's an integration that we're really looking forward to because of course, that's where you get to realize a lot of the benefits of atomic transactions, atomic swaps, atomic exchange, where if something is, is coming in on uh, from another network or a payment hits a certain address on one network, well, then an automated payment can be sent on another network. And so that sort of uh, functionality, instant settlement um, will open up again, another you know, uh, quite a few categories of use cases and, and uh, multiples of use cases within those. So, um, yeah, I guess when we talk about functionality and the way that the digital currency management system is evolving in the underlying transaction network, the, that's sort of a, a summary of how I see. And, and as you can imagine, it's going to keep us busy for years to come as we start to, you know, test each of those use cases, configure it, program it and, and deploy it. It's um, there's, there's quite a lot to accomplish. Well, one of those use cases will be the, the cross-border payments, but I, I'll come back to that in a minute because I think it has general application in this in this area. But just looking at the ENIRA from the point of view of the central bank itself, I think a lot of the central banks who, who watch this interview will be interested in the answer to this question. The ENIRA is obviously a central bank liability, it's central bank money. How uh, big an issue was it for them? How big a concern was it for them about cybersecurity, for one thing? How do you prevent people hacking into this um, central bank liability, and secondly, operational resilience. So it's kind of, this stuff has to be available. It has to work. There's no question. You can't uh, let the, mm. the central bank money system lie down for a day while it recovers. How big were those two issues, cybersecurity and operational resilience? Yeah, absolutely. They're massive. It's uh, And they have um, also third-party uh, sort of security uh, service providers sort of constantly doing testing of the system. Um, so it's, again, it's something that obviously is a huge focus at BIT, um, but also, you know, as central banks sort of roll out these systems, again, it's not like there, there are multiple parties or multiple firms that sort of come together and to collaborate to bring the system to market, to continue to roll out and operate it, um, and to ensure its uptime uh, and, and security. So it's, yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge concern, a lot of attention given to it. Uh, and it is certainly a collaborative effort between the technologists at BIT and the you know, full-time operations support staff, uh, as well as you know, third-party security uh, penetration testing and other sort of uh, firms that are you know, constantly verifying the integrity and security of the system. Now, I, I took the trouble to look at how the, the Central Bank of Nigeria and the Nigerian government presented the, the CBDC in the first place, and they came up with quite a long list of of good reasons for, for launching a CBDC. And I'll, I'll just rehearse them to you because I think they'll be of interest to, to people watching is they thought it would enhance their, their tax capture, their tax collection. They thought it would reduce financial crime through traceability. We, we've touched on that already. They thought it would shrink the, the size of the black market economy, which is very substantial in Nigeria. They thought it would lower transaction costs. It would uh, eventually, uh, obviously not in its first iteration, which is bank dominated, but it would eventually uh, increase financial inclusion, reach the unbanked, 
at some point. It would enable them to make welfare payments. It would make it easier for them to implement their monetary policy decisions. Uh, it would even moderate the devaluation of the currency. It would enable them to help curb inflation. And of course, it would bring the, the official and the black market uh, exchange rates back into alignment. Now, I don't expect you to comment on all of those, but I'm wondering what, what, in your view, the chief lessons of the Nigerian experience in terms of the design and delivery of the, of the e-Naira are uh, for other countries that are looking at, at launching a CBDC, they don't, you know, should they look at this laundry list of benefits or should they be, from your point of view, focusing much more on narrow questions of, of design, how to make this work in your market with your, uh, your needs and your budgets? Look, it's a good question. It's, it's also, I, I think like my first reaction to that is, uh, is that these things don't happen overnight. These are long pr uh, projects. I think uh, you, you think of uh, sort of the, the most successful um, payment services you know, it's just sort of since the, um, since the launch of, I guess, what you would consider web two, um, these, uh, these rails, took you know years and years to actually get a user base get substantial substantial transaction volume um, fulfill valuable use cases for retail consumers enterprises and more um, so the initiation of these cbdc pilots is just that it's the initiation bringing them to market getting the central bank to wrap their head around a new set of responsibilities and their new tool set and how they will use the tool set um, but ultimately, a lot of the benefits can't actually be realized until you have substantial adoption and adoption takes time. There's no, you know, there's no quick fix for adoption. Um, obviously, we're doing everything we can to help on the technological side, which is, you know, a lot of it has to do with interoperability and a rich feature set, which, uh, again, our digital currency management system is constantly growing in features and the ability to efficiently and securely integrate with complementary systems in the existing financial system, whether it be on the network side or uh, application side. So, yeah, I, I, I hate to um, sort of, you know, down, downplay the activity, but it really is just the start of a journey. Right, it's it's the start of a journey. Launching a new payment rail into the public domain, um, encouraging firms to build on top of that network and to provide value to the general public, to provide value to enterprises and and any other stakeholders who would be transacting on it. Um, even crypto took uh, you know twelve years to sort of hit well hit where we are today. It's been you could argue Bitcoin's been around for twelve years, and uh, and and it took the, sort of that long. Um, to, to get to where we are today, where you have the sort of usage um, that's made it sort of a real splash in international markets. Um, so I would just say it's, you know, it's a work in progress. It is a journey. It, uh, nothing happens overnight. And there are, there are a lot of specifics for each country considering, um, you know, rolling out a CBDC in their own uh, jurisdiction. Again, I, I think when you think about it broadly, um, it's effectively evolving the technology behind uh, a national currency. Uh, and whether that's done by the central banks or it's done by uh, commercial banks, um, you know, I, I just see that as a, as a, as a trend that's going to continue um, to the point where we will get the sort of uh, currency to currency integrations that offer the efficiency gains and the settlement time reductions and the cost reductions um, that you would expect out of a competitive international monetary system. Um, so that's that's sort of how how we see it, and 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 the digital currency management system is looking to fulfill those objectives um, to to enable that interoperability, to enable the cost reduction and the efficiency and security. Now, of course, Bit is on a on a journey along with the 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 central banks. This is your second CBDC to go live uh, after the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank launched last year as as well. What do you know now that you didn't know before you went live with your first? CBDC early last year? That's a good question. Um, it's, uh, what did we not, what do I know now that I didn't know? I guess, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder every time we enter into a new country. So we are across three 
uh, continents now. We have uh, stable employment in, uh, in Belize, and we have an upcoming uh, deployment in Eastern Europe as well, mm-hmm. um, as well as our own uh, digital currency deployment in Barbados. So that's inclusive of you know the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank in Nigeria. Um, each each country really does have a unique uh, set of objectives that they're looking to achieve. So it's been fascinating to learn about each country's objectives. And so you can picture our challenge is to um, consume those objectives, internalize, understand them as a company, understand them as technologists, and then factor and try and build uh, feature sets that are common to as many central banks as possible and to enable the configurability of the solution for these central banks. So I guess I would say that that's what we are learning. You know, we've, we've been deep in the research building for sort of the past five, six years. And yet, as we start to bring these things to market, you start to get validation from elements of the research and say, oh, this is in line with what we've read from the Bank of, for International Settlements or the Bank of England or Banque de France, you know, plenty of quality, like lots of quality research has come out over the last five, six years that's guided uh, some of our initial development and deployment uh, of our product. And yet, yeah, as you work directly with central banks, you start to understand uh, you know, how, how they work. Also, we, I guess one of the things is we've recognized just how big these projects are and that it's, uh, I think I mentioned it earlier, where it's not just about BIT and the central bank bringing something to market. There are all kinds of other uh, entities and efforts that are required to be managed. So you can think about organizational change management, think about project management. Um, the augmented responsibility of the central banks really demands a lot. And so we've seen more firms come to the table, whether it's system integrators or, uh, you know, assurance, um, other professional service providers come to the table to assist in the go-to-market strategy and the ongoing operation of these systems. Um, and, and so the, I guess that's one of the things that we've learned is that you know, large projects and they require, you know, multi-talented stakeholder groups to be able to effectively launch them and, and operate them in market. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, Belize and Ukraine. You brought them up. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what you're doing there? For sure. Yeah, these are, uh, so in, in Belize, uh, we are working with the National Bank of Belize on a digital Belize dollar. That's uh, sort of a, a regulated stablecoin project. So very excited about that. Uh, in the Ukraine, we are working with uh, Tascom Bank um, to effectively continue the National Bank of Ukraine's Ihrvnia, uh CBDC pilot project. So it's sort of, uh, again, a, a, an affiliated stablecoin as in it's affiliated with the central bank but it'll be a regulated stablecoin project to continue the testing of an ehervinya uh, so we're really excited about that one that if you know and for that one that's an interesting one for us where we've integrated with the stellar network um, stellar has been the stellar development foundation have been sort of uh, in the development community surrounding the stellar protocol have been evolving that protocol to meet some of the needs of a monetary authority so that's been a unique one for us to work with um, because it's the first sort of open decentralized network that we're able to build on. Uh, And and Ukraine has some very unique goals um, that sort of stretch beyond what some other central banks have stated so far. And that's like, uh, and so, yeah, there's, I I think we'll see more integration and interoperability with decentralized finance and maybe some of the, uh, the, the crypto economy that's there exchanges and OTC desks and whatnot. Uh, But they also have some really interesting, um, payment use cases that they're looking to achieve. So public service salaries and, and uh, batch payments, automated payments. So um, it's a, that's, a, that's a really exciting one for us as well. Mm-hmm. Now, something you've brought up uh, more than once in this conversation is, is, is the idea of networks, of atomic settlement, of, of currency to currency integration. And I'm wondering what your view is of, of how CBDCs could contribute to something which has become quite a high profile topic, which is reducing the cost of, of cross-border payments. At the moment, the cross-border payments are made mainly between correspondent banks uh, with access to local real-time gross settlement systems operated by, by central banks. Do you think, uh, and, the, and the Bank for International Settlements has kind of floated this idea, do you think that there will be, to your point about currency to currency integration, links between CBDC networks and could they replace this current combination of correspondent banks and RTGS systems as the lowest cost means of making cross-border cross-currency payments? Yeah, I do think that that's where the future is headed. It's certainly one of the 
sort of um, big, sort of the, one of the bigger goals and, and uh, I guess, sort of advanced functionality that's offered by these networks is the ability for them to talk directly to each other via smart contracts. Um, it's there's, but there's a host of considerations uh, that, that need to be sort of factored in, in integrating that. And there's still some involvement by the central banks. You think about, okay, uh, so you have two CBDC networks that talk to one another for exchange. Well, they need to be pulling um, like pricing data from somewhere. And then that price data needs to be implemented and agreed to by the two counterparty central banks, or if there are Forex traders in there as well. So it's, it's you know, there are, there's elements that need to be um, defined there by participants, but that's, I, I do think that that's where we're headed. Again, just because efficiency gains, reduce settlement times, uh, reduce cost, and the fact that you can securely execute a transaction like that, I, I think, yeah, we're, we're definitely headed there. So, you, you know, we might see a future where central banks agree to a, a specific price oracle for their currencies. And perhaps as long as they're keeping that pricing oracle live in a certain format, uh, that, you know, transactions would be able to be executed network to network. Uh, provided liquidity pools were sufficient and, and at certain levels, right? So that, that's sort of where I see it heading. Um, you know, I, I don't think you're going to see full automation for, uh, for years to come, um, but the, the, these are use cases that we're looking at very closely and collaborating with some players who are already proving out, um, uh, you know, specific uh, scenarios. Um, because, you know, again, I, yeah, I, I think that's where we're headed more broadly is the short answer. If, if those central banks were, were pricing those cross-currency transactions, those cross-currency payments using an oracle, something has to feed that oracle and, the, and that, those prices that feed the oracle have to come from somewhere and presumably from an active foreign exchange market. You don't worry that if uh, central banks, CBDCs take over the cross-currency payments business that there simply wouldn't be enough going on in the foreign exchange markets to to create the prices to feed the the oracle in other words you you continue to believe the fx market roughly as it looks today will continue to exist alongside an inter-cbdc uh cross-currency payment system is that a reasonable supposition reasonable interpretation of what you're saying yeah yeah exactly exactly right uh, um a last question for you uh it's interesting to a lot of observers that the the real experiments taking place and live experiments taking place in CBDC have tended to be in the sort of markets you're serving in, in developing economies. China's obviously an exception for, for reasons of its own. But do you think as you look, I don't know how far ahead you want to look, maybe three, five, even 10 years, do you expect CBDCs to, to continue to be a tool used mainly by developing economies. I saw, for example, the other day that in the House of Lords in the United Kingdom, it's come out saying, well, there's no need for a, for a sterling CBDC for the foreseeable future. We just don't, don't need it. Do you think CBDCs are gonna offer advantages mainly to developing economies, or do you expect to see them being adopted by developed major economies? I'm talking here of, of, of the Euro, the dollar, the, and indeed sterling. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Uh, you know, right now it seems like all eyes are on the Fed who are due to release their paper on a, you know, a potential digital uh, US dollar CBDC. Um, I, I think that the developing nations definitely have, uh, you know, opportunities to, um, yeah, to evolve their payment system maybe in a, in a you know, in a faster manner, and they're looking for ways to perhaps attract investment, encourage economic activity, and, uh, and, and sort of, yeah, attract, it's, it's about talent and capital and, and, and attracting that and showing that, you know, they have progressive stance on um, how to leverage technology and, and the technological evolution of, uh, you know, that, that's happened over the last decade in digital finance. So I, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting trend, definitely, that outside of China, you're seeing the, the developing nations move towards this. Um, I would say, look, the, the developed nations have also been experimenting in, in their own right, and some of them have just left it to the private sector to experiment. You could argue that, you know, the 150 billion plus that's uh, behind U.S. dollar stablecoins now is could be considered an experiment of a, of a U.S. dollar CBDC, even though, of course, 
the boundaries and the, and the um, restrictions and use cases may not be the most desirable from the Federal Reserve's perspective, but yes. from a technology perspective, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a, um, you could consider it an experiment of just like digitizing and extending the, the US dollar. So I guess what I'm saying is these experiments are taking place with the major currencies um, sort of in the private sector and whether or not we see their central banks uh, move towards it, it's, uh, it may be one of those cases where as one does it, then, you know, it sort of forces the next one to do it and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm really curious, like we're, we're just sort of, you know, watching to see how, um, you know, who's going to move forward. We're seeing some good work out of the uh, Digital Euro Association, Digital Pound Foundation, um, the Digital Dollar Working Group and others in the U.S., so, you know, we're just going to keep close to those updates and, uh, and see, and again, I, I would really like to see what's happening. Uh, the Federal Reserve, we're, we're waiting for that paper. I think it was due to come out at the end of last year. So really excited to see what they release. Uh, Simon, one, one last question for you. It's interesting looking at uh, what's happening in the world of CBDCs, and particularly the type of clients that you are working with, that it's the developing economies, the developing nations, which are pioneering uh, the use of CBDCs for real. Uh, China is obviously an exception, but um, do you think that pattern is going to persist as you look five, seven, ten years ahead, or do we can we look forward to a a, a, a dollar or euro or sterling CBDC sometime soon? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think when we think of the definition of developing economies, it's right in the name, I think they have more incentive to continue developing, to experiment, to evolve um, elements of their financial system and, and increase, you know, do whatever they can to increase trade and attack talent, attack capital uh, to their country. So I think this is why you're seeing them take uh, more proactive approaches is because they are by definition developing and they're looking to, uh, to expand economic activity in their borders and, and arguably beyond. That being said, um, I, I think you could consider that there have there has been rather uh, development behind the major currencies. You could, you could say like the over 150 billion uh, US dollars behind the existing stable coins is, is effectively an experiment of a digitized US dollar, even though the, the use cases and the governance associated with it is not how the Federal Reserve would implement a, a digital US dollar, but you could argue that um, there's sort of private sector development of the major currencies, certainly a US dollar, and we've seen some uh, initiatives for uh, digital euros through the Digital Euro Association, the Digital Pound Foundation, and uh, some of the, the digital dollar working group in, in the US and, and Project Hamilton and, and some other groups in the US. So I think it's just, it's being done differently and more carefully in, um, in, in the G20 uh, because, they don't have as much of an incentive um, to continue to innovate um, at, at, at a rapid pace like uh, developing economies do. So uh, moving forward, I think, um, uh, yeah, as use cases get validated and as uh, countries move to digitize their currency and, and start to uh, realize the benefits uh, that, again, I, I mentioned, we've sort of covered them uh, extensively throughout the interview of, you know, interconnection, interoperability, um, getting right down to atomic swap and, and atomic exchanges. I think as countries start to realize those sort of larger goals, then you'll, you'll see the, uh, the majors start to do the same. Um, I just think that they are sort of following, you know, uh, a pace that's, that they're more used to and also leaving it to, to academia and the private sector to experiment so that they can learn <clears throat> and, uh, and, and then sort of move forward at their own pace. Simon Chaudhry, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Dominic. Always a pleasure to be with you.